Uh, Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 16 and 17. Uh, On October 31st, Christians all over the world will probably uh, celebrate the 500th anniversary of the... uh, what they would call the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, it would be the day when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door uh, at Wittenberg in Germany. And so this morning we're going to celebrate that. We're going to honor that by meditating on uh, one of the texts and some of the ideas that really changed his heart and changed uh, the church and then changed the world. So please read this beautiful text along with me. This is Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning as people who need your righteousness. We cannot create our own righteousness. We cannot generate enough of it to pay our debt. And even if we could, our righteousness wouldn't be enough uh, because it is filthy righteousness, Father. So we need you now to show us, to reveal to us again, your righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Give us the gift of faith by the Holy Spirit. Uh, We can't muster up enough faith to believe this on our own. We need even that to be a gift. Um, Give us the faith to live this out. Um, Give us hearts and minds and ears to understand. We pray that you do this by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the the title of the sermon this morning is The Strange Power of the Gospel. Uh, The title in your bulletin is wrong. I don't know who told Doug to put that in there, uh, but it's different. It's a joke. I told Doug to put it in there, and I changed it. It's not Doug's fault. And then there are going to be two points this morning that you can write down. If you're a note taker, you can follow along. Uh, The first point is the strange persistence of guilt and the strange power of the gospel. So we're going to look at the strange persistence of guilt and the strange power of the gospel. And I want to start out by telling you a story from Martin Luther's life. We're going to intersperse a lot of these this morning. Uh, Martin Luther was an impeccable monk. He tried to do all the right things. He prayed, he fasted, he taught, he read. He served, but he had a problem. Despite all the things he did, he knew that God was a just and holy God. And he knew that he could not do enough to pay for his sins and come into God's presence. So he was constantly searching for something to do to alleviate his guilt. It started with the way of self-help. Uh, He started with charity, sobriety, chastity, poverty, obedience, fasting, all of those good spiritual disciplines that we would would recommend for somebody who wanted to grow in holiness. He did all those, but it didn't work. Then he tried the way of confession. He went to the confessional every day. He tried to confess every sin he could think of, every sin he could remember. Sometimes he would even spend up to six hours in the confessional. At one point, The other priest got so frustrated with him, he said, man, come back when you have sins to forgive. Don't you wish we'd say that to you sometimes? (laughs) Come back later, right? But But he wouldn't do it. He couldn't do it. The confession wouldn't alleviate his guilt. 
Then he tried what they call the mystical ladder. And the mystical ladder was uh, ceasing to strive. He decided that he wasn't going to strive anymore, that he was just going to sink into the Creator. He was going to sink into the other, and that would alleviate his guilt. But it never did. He constantly strived and struggled to alleviate his guilt, but he couldn't. He had a strange persistence of guilt that wouldn't leave him. Now, do we have that strange persistence of guilt today? I read an article last year. It was interesting. It was called The Strange Persistence of Guilt uh, by a man named Wilford McClay. And what, what Wilford says is that we today, religious people and irreligious people, have a strange persistence of guilt. He starts with Nietzsche, and he talks about how Nietzsche thought that our guilt came from indebtedness to our ancestors. We thought, people thought they were indebted to their ancestors to live a certain way, and so they tried to make up for that indebtedness, but they couldn't. And that, that people coupled that with a Christian God who was the ultimate, and so we were always living under this impression that we were never matching up to the ultimate not yet. And so what he said is God is dead, and once God is dead, we're going to alleviate people of all this guilt. But it didn't work. Another man named Sigmund Freud, maybe you've heard of him, came along, and he saw the same problem. He said people are, are stricken by guilt. He said that it was something that dwelled on the subconscious, but it was, it was sort of a malaise or a discontent. It was, it was subtle. It was hard to put a finger on. He said that this, uh, that this was the major problem of our culture and that this heightened sense of guilt came from a lot, to a loss of happiness. He said part of the problem was that we were advancing as a civilization. And as we were advancing as a civilization, we were gaining more and more guilt. So what people like Nietzsche and Freud try to do is they try to say, well, guilt's not a bad thing. They demoralized it. They changed the terms for it. They threw out all the traditional categories of forgiveness, atonement, repentance, all those things, and they just hoped that guilt would go away. But it didn't. And then came the Internet. And what happened with the Internet was, is it gave us the ability to be connected to everything and everybody in the world and get information about everything. So now we feel like we have the power to affect change in the world. And we should affect change in the world. So you have these two things held together in our society. You have uh, this, this persistence of guilt but at the same time, no forgiveness, no repentance, just sort of wishing it away. And you have this power to affect change all over the world. And what McClay says is that has led to a people who walk around with a strange persistence of guilt all day long. And I love how he summarizes it. He says, power entails responsibility, and responsibility leads to guilt. I can see a picture of a starving child in a remote corner of the world on my television. And know for a fact that I could travel to that faraway place and relieve that child's immediate suffering if I cared to do it. I don't do it, but I know I could. Although if I did, I would be a well-meaning fool like Dickens' ludicrous Miss Jellyby. That may be a typo. I have jelly by. I don't think that's right. Who grossly neglects her own family and neighborhood in favor of the distant philanthropy of African missions. Either way, some measure of guilt 
would seem to be my inescapable lot as an empowered man living in an interconnected world. Empowered people living in an interconnected world that eschews guilt and eschews forgiveness and eschews atonement leaves us with a strange persistence of guilt. There was a, a State Farm commercial a few years ago that, I mean, hit the nail on the head precisely when it described this. Uh, if you watch the commercial, there's a, a man, of course he's good-looking and well-dressed, sitting in a subway, and he looks up and he sees an ad for adopting a pet. He looks at the ad and then he looks to his left, and there's the pet staring at him with its puppy dog eyes like, adopt me, adopt me. He gets out of the subway, and he gets out of the subway, and the dog follows him down the street. He walks past a homeless man asking for money. And as he walks past the homeless man, he sees him, but he doesn't go. And that homeless man then begins to walk behind him. And so now he's got the dog and the homeless man walking behind him. He goes to work, and they shows the dog and the homeless man playing together there in the office. Then he goes to the bar later on that night, and as he's at the bar, he sees a, a, a news story about a, a dropout, a high school dropout, and how we need to help high school dropouts. And pretty soon that high school dropout is following him down the street. He goes to play a football game the next day, and as he's at the football game, he sees this mob of people that he has passed over the last couple of days, and they are all watching him, staring at him while he's playing football. Then it shows him walking down the street with this mob of people, the homeless man, the dog, the dropout, everybody following him. As he walks down the street, he passes a volunteer like community service center. And he looks up at the center, and you can see he's kind of contemplating, like, am I going to go in? Am I not going to go in? Am I going to do this? And then the high school dropout walks up and puts his hand on his shoulder and doesn't say anything. And the man looks at the, the door, turns, and walks in. And the commercial ends by saying, you can lift the weight of the world by doing. You can lift the cares of the world by doing. What is that commercial saying? One, it's saying that we all accumulate this guilt all day long as we walk through the world and we see all the people that we could help if we really wanted to help. And it's saying all that we have to do to alleviate our guilt and to help the world is to do. What is the world saying? It's saying that if you want to alleviate your guilt, you've got to do. What did the religious world tell Martin Luther? If you want to alleviate your religious guilt, you've got to do. You've got to do your spiritual disciplines. You've got to do confession. You've got to follow the mystic ladder. You've got to do, 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 do. What do we tell ourselves to relieve our guilt? I've got to do more. I've got to be more. And I've got to be better. What are you guilty about? What do you feel guilty about? And how do you try to relieve that guilt? As I was thinking about this sermon, and I was thinking about myself, I was thinking, okay, I have those like habitual sins that I do that I feel guilty about. But I, I thought, I don't really like walk around with this persistent feeling of guilt. That's what I thought. And then, as I was reading the article and I was going through the week, something just clicked. I think that's what the Holy Spirit does. Things click when the Holy Spirit's at work. Something clicked, and, and as I was going through the week, I realized that I was really, really anxious. I'm an anxious person. I struggle with anxiety. 
And so I started asking myself, why am I struggling with anxiety? And then it dawned on me. I struggle with anxiety because I see all the things in the world that I could do and I want to do, but I can't do them. So the source of my anxiety is guilt about the things that I want to do but can't do. And I can't do the things that I do as well as I want to do them. Is that you? Are you an anxious person? And is there a chance that your anxiety comes from a lingering, a lingering, strange persistence of guilt? That feeling has a theological root. You see, the problem is, is this, is that because sin is in the world, we experience the power of sin, we experience the penalty of sin, we experience the presence of sin. And because of that sin, we are sometimes and feel not right with God. Something is not right. That not rightness is what the Bible calls unrighteousness. That there is an order in the world, that there is order to God, that there is something that we're not aligned with. And so we feel guilty and we are guilty when we're not aligned with God. Guilt is a state of being at fault or indebted to someone or something. And so it's that persistent feeling that we're at fault, that we're wrong, that we're indebted. So we walk around with all day long. That, that sin leads to unrighteousness, and it leads to that, both the object of guilt and the feelings of guilt. So what do we need? We need something to put us right with God. We need something to pay the debt. We need something to pay the penalty. We need something to destroy the presence of sin and the power of sin over us. So we turn to Romans 1, 16 and 17. You were thinking, Shane, what does this have to do with Romans 1, 16 and 17? Get to the point. So here we're to the point. Romans 1, 16 and 17. This was one of the texts that Luther meditated on when he had his breakthrough. And this is what Luther says. He wrote this in the preface to one of his collections. Uh, sort of a little reminiscent. He called it his tower experience. Uh, many would call it his, his conversion experience. When he actually went from being a religious person to being a Christian. And he says this, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, but nothing stood in the way more than that phrase, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. So he's saying, when I saw the righteousness of God, I saw the attribute of God's justice where he was the judge on the throne and he was going to punish all unrighteousness. Which is true, that concept of justice is in the Bible. But that is not the righteousness of God here. He said, my situation was that though an impeccable monk, I stood every day before God feeling like a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just God, but rather murmured and hated against him. Would that describe us? Because we think God is angry with us, we don't love the just God. We hate him and murmur against him. Then he says this, Therefore, night and day, I pondered. And then I saw the statement, The righteous will live because of faith. And then I grasped that through gift and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself reborn, 
and to have gone through open doors into paradise. When I discovered the distinction that the law is one thing and the Gospel is another, I broke through. When Luther discovered that the righteousness of God was a gracious gift that came by faith, he broke through. The strange persistence of his guilt was broken by the strange power of the Gospel. And that's the second thing I want you to see. I want you to see that there is a strange power in the Gospel. Okay? And the first thing that's strange about the Gospel is that it's an announcement. Okay? The Gospel is an announcement. The word, that comes, uh, the word for the Gospel comes in the Greek. It's euangelion. And it literally means good news. Right? In ancient times, uh, this was the term that was used to describe the message that a herald would bring back about a battle. So they would have the battle on the front lines, and then the herald's job was to come back to the castle and bring the news about what happened in the battle. So they would run back to the castle, and when they would bring the good news, they would say, the battle's over, the battle's been won, the enemy has been defeated. It's an announcement. The Gospel is an announcement about the good news of what God has done. Right? For those of you who are dinosaurs like me, it would be like a newspaper headline. Right? You would, you would get the newspaper out, you'd read it, and it would say, the good news is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus saves you. Those are not instructions. Those are not, that's not good advice. That is good news about what Jesus did. Those of you who only know media through the smartphone, right? this would be like you picking up your phone and getting a notification that says, Good news. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has saved you. Right? It's an announcement about what God has done. It is not instructions or good advice. Think back to the, uh, think back to the, the ad that I referenced earlier. At the end of it, it said, you can lift the weight of caring by doing. Okay? The Gospel says that Jesus lifted the weight of caring by what He did on the cross. It's an announcement. The gospel strange because it's an announcement. It, it's words, right? And, and the world doesn't get that. The world thinks words. Words don't work. Words don't have power. You've got to do. And the gospel's saying no. It, it, the good news, the power that you need to relieve you from your guilt comes from an announcement about what God has done through the person and work of Jesus. So the gospel is strange because it's an announcement. The gospel is strange because of its righteousness, Okay? Every other world system, every other world view, uh, from, from Luther's religious view to Freud and Nietzsche's irreligious view, they are all designed around building up man's righteousness. Man righteousness based on what he does and how he performs. Right? We also would call this self-righteousness. Right? If you're, if you're focused on making yourself right with God, the world, and others through what you do, you're building up your self-righteousness. You're building up man-righteousness. But the Gospel says man-righteousness can't do it. Won't do it. It's not good enough. You can never build up enough man-righteousness to make yourself right with God and with the world around you. There's got to be a supernatural righteousness. There's got to be a divine righteousness. There's got to be something else. And that is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is what Luther called an alien righteousness that comes to us because it's outside of us. It is not ours. 
Uh, I was reading another uh, theologian this week. His name's John Murray. And he said this righteousness has divine qualities. Right? It is, it is authored by God. It is originated by God. It is carried out by the God-man Jesus. Divine, God-like righteousness is totally different than our righteousness. And the gospel's strange because that's the only righteousness that will work. That is the only righteousness that will alleviate your guilt. And that's a righteousness that comes to us by faith. It's a righteousness that Paul describes here in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. See, there's a transaction that takes place. Our unrighteousness is given to Jesus, and His righteousness is given to us, and that makes us righteous. Part of the problem with what the, the secular world did, Nietzsche and Freud, what they did when they threw out tradi- traditional categories of forgiveness and sin and atonement is there was no transaction. No transaction occurred, so no real guilt and forgiveness could take place. And so you have all these people wishing and hoping for forgiveness, but there was no actual transaction. In the Gospel, you have an actual transaction where the righteousness of Jesus is given to you. And it looks like this. Uh, There's a pastor who tells a story about um, a a couple. And they were were married. And uh, one night, the wife came to him and confessed uh, her adultery. That while, while they were engaged to be married, that she had cheated on him. And she broke down in the, in the bedroom. She, she said, I, you know, I know you forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. I don't know how you could forgive me. I don't know how we're going to go on. And he said, you wait right here. He went to the store. He, he bought a wedding dress. He came back, and he put that wedding dress on his wife. And he says, this is how Jesus sees you, and this is how I see you. You are spotless, white. You are righteous. You are right with God and you are right with me. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, then God has put a white wedding dress on you. He has taken your filthy rags. He has taken your unrighteousness on Himself and He has given you a white wedding dress that you get to wear around every day. As you walk down the streets and there's all this guilt following you, you're you're wearing a wedding dress of righteousness that cannot be taken from you. It was given to you by Jesus. I heard about something strange at the, tail, at the football game yesterday uh, before we were tailgating, and somebody came up and they said, I just saw the weirdest thing. There was a bride who had a wedding tailgate, and she was standing on the corner in her wedding dress, like hanging out at the tailgate in her wedding dress. Symbolically, metaphorically, spiritually, everybody who was at the tailgate yesterday who's in Christ was wearing a wedding dress was wearing the righteousness of Christ. Everyone in here this morning who has said, I am a sinner and my man righteousness is worthless. I need Jesus' righteousness. I need divine righteousness. Is wearing a wedding dress. It's the righteousness of Jesus. And it's what allows you to come into God's presence and be right with Him and right with everybody else. The gospel strange because of its announcement. It's strange because of its righteousness. And it's strange because of its scope. The gospel's strange because it doesn't just go to the rich. It doesn't just go to the poor. It, just, it doesn't just go to white. It doesn't just go to black. It doesn't just go to middle class or upper class or lower class. It doesn't go to conservatives or liberals. It doesn't go to Sooners or Pokes. 
It goes out. It goes to everyone. It goes to the Jew and the Greek. Its scope reaches all who are sinners because Jesus paid for all who are sinners that would have faith in Him and would receive Him. Right? It's a righteousness that encompasses guilty mothers who every day, uh, you know, they're either working and they feel guilty because they're not at home with their kids or taking care of their kids or doing as much as they could be for Jesus, or they're not working and they're feeling guilty because they're not working but their house still isn't clean and their kids still aren't perfectly behaved and their homeschool homework isn't perfectly done. It pays for both of those. It removes guilt for both mothers. It removes guilt for husbands who feel guilty because they not only yell at their own kids, but they yell at the neighbors. <laughs> kids and the neighbors. Yell all of them. I wonder who did that yesterday. It's, it's, it's not just for... Um, <laughs> it's for dads who care way too much about young men getting a ball across a line. It's for dads who can't quit overworking. It's for dads who look at their paycheck and say, I'm just not bringing home enough. It's for dads who look at their paycheck and say, I am bringing home enough, but I'm not getting the respect that I deserve. It's for students who are crumbling under the weight of their parents' expectations and their professors' expectations and the expectations of the world. It's for students who swore they wouldn't do that thing again last night, but they did it. The gospel's strange because it goes out to you even in your sin. It says, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That it wasn't while we were pretty and beautiful and perfect that Jesus died for us. It was while we were sinners that Jesus died for us. He died for sinners. Of which Paul says, I'm the chief. The gospel is strange because it's an announcement. It's strange because of its righteousness. It's strange because of its scope. And it is strange because of its power. There's a strange power to the gospel. That whenever the gospel is proclaimed and the gospel is received by faith and when the gospel is shared with all people, it has power. Power to change people. The power to change people and the power to change the world. Um, during World War II, there was a, a monk named Father Maximilian Kolbe. Uh, he was well known in the concentration camp. He saved thousands of Jews while he was in the concentration camp. He had a reputation for loving the Nazis and the Jews better than anybody else. And one day, there were three prisoners that escaped from the concentration camp. So they brought out all the prisoners in the concentration camp. And they said, all right, we're going to murder, we're going to sacrifice ten of you. We're going to punish ten of you. We're going to kill you because of these men that escaped. So as they were going through the line, they were picking the men that they were going to murder, and they picked one of the guys. And when they picked the guys, he said, oh no, my wife and my kids, how are they going to live without me? And Father Colbe, who obviously was innocent because he was still there, stepped up and said, I'll take the punishment for that man. So they took Father Colbe. They put him in a torture area. He prayed for the guards while he was in the torture chamber. And he died. They said that when he died, it was like a bolt of lightning struck the concentration camp that brought hope and light and love to everybody. The good news about Father Colbe's death brought power. Power to change the concentration camp. And it brings power to change our world. Because Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection 
carries with it power. And we go out and we proclaim the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we believe in the God-righteousness that God given us. And we share that with everybody. It changes things. It changes the world around us. And that's where the breakthrough happens. That's where the breakthrough happens in our own hearts. Um, as we meditate on this strange power of the Gospel daily, our hearts and our minds are changed. Luther had a student, and uh, one of his students before class one day said, uh, Professor Luther, why do we start every lesson with the gospel? Why, like, why is it every lesson, like the gospel and then the lesson? And Luther said, because we all forget the gospel between the lessons. And every day we have to be reminded of the gospel. We all forget it, and we all walk around with this persistent sense of guilt, and we all need the gospel every day. We get to meditate on it. And it's by grace. You're going to fail to meditate on it. And guess what? You're still set by grace because of Jesus' righteousness and not your own. So we meditate on the gospel. And then we receive that strange, that strange power by faith. Right? The slogan of our lives is not we can lift the cares of the world by doing. It's Jesus lifted the, care, the cares of the world and my cares on the cross. We trust that. That's the thing that we see on our phone. That's a newspaper headline that we see every day. And then we proclaim that message. We, the, the, the believing comes before the doing, right? We believe the gospel, we meditate on the gospel, we trust it, and then we proclaim it. We proclaim it to everybody. Uh, this week, there was uh, a church group on set up talking to people, and then there was an atheist group that was set up to talking to people on campus. And I walked by the atheist group, and out of shame of myself because I didn't think I could actually sit down and have like a reasonable conversation with them without turning without either a turning into an argument or b preaching a sermon I just kept on walking and I felt guilty all day because I kept walking and didn't sit and talk with them and then so like I was on campus for a long time so I walked by that time and then I came back by and I walked by again and guess who was sitting there talking to the atheists Chris our intern was sitting there talking to the atheist about Jesus. Proclaiming the good news of the gospel that Jesus came for atheists too. He came to rescue them. And that by grace through faith, that they too, that the world could be put right. So we proclaim that gospel uh, to others. We can, we can also use this strange power of the gospel to combat false guilt. I'm convinced that a lot of the guilt that we walk around with during the day is false guilt. That it's not true biblical guilt. And so I think we have to go to the Bible and look at what God says we should and shouldn't do in His Word. And we can use that gospel to combat false guilt. Uh, a, couple, a couple weeks ago I was at the gym and uh, there was a, there was a, I saw a guy who's invited me to play basketball with him several, several times. And never once have I said, like, yes, I'm going to the basketball game. I'm going to play with you guys. But this guy came by, and we, we made small talk, and I said, hi. And I said, hey, man, what are you up to? And he goes, well, I just got through playing that basketball game that you never come to. And I said, oh, okay, have a good one, man, great. And as he walked by, I was like, I'm pretty sure I never promised him I was going to that game. Like, I don't think I'm responsible to go to every pickup basketball game with the Colfin, right? That's false guilt. I wasn't guilty for that. We can combat false guilt. We can confess true guilt. The strange power of the gospel is that you can bring your guilt to Jesus and confess it, and he'll heal it. 
And the strange power of the gospel is that we can unite together to actually affect change. And that's what we're going to do in the Lord's Supper. We're actually going to come together as the body of Christ. We're going to unite underneath the person and work of Jesus to say that we are righteous, we're right with God, not because of anything we've done, but because of what God has done through Jesus Christ. And as we do this, as we unite as a body, and as we, you, we unite with the church throughout history and the church in the world, real change actually does happen because of the strange power of the gospel. So let's pray together and confess our faith and eat this meal together. Father in heaven, uh, we do come to you and confess that we are guilty people. Some of that is actual real guilt where we have offended your law and some of that is, is just false guilt that we feel from the world. And we confess that we cannot remove our own guilt. We need you to do it by the power of the gospel. You have done it through Jesus. He has died for our sins. He has been raised for our sins. We put our faith and our trust in him. Father, give us the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.